Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. As we continue our summer sermon series looking at the specific messages that Jesus had for seven specific churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And because there is much application in these messages, we're calling this sermon series a message to the church because I believe that Jesus has some things he wants to say to us by way of application. And so look with me, Revelation chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Before we read, I want to ask you a couple of questions. And I don't want you to ask, answer these questions out loud. I want you to answer them in the quietness of your heart. Question number one is this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Now, that's not a church membership question. I'm not asking if you're a member of Longview Point Baptist Church or if your name's on a membership roll somewhere or you serve in some capacity in the life of the church. It's not that, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you love Jesus? That's not a denominational question. I'm not asking if you're a Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or any of that. I'm asking you, do you love Jesus? And here's the, the second question I have for you that's related to the first. Do you love Jesus more than anything or anyone else? In other words, is your love for Jesus preeminent? Is Christ first in your life? Do you, I mean, do you love Jesus? We're going to see in our text this morning that Christians and churches can be prone to losing their love for Christ. It can happen. And perhaps it has happened to many in this room. So I want us to look at this, this passage and learn how a person or a church gets to that place of losing their first love and then begin to talk about how we recapture it. So I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now just FYI, this is a four-point four message. We're only going to get to two this morning, all right? I turned in my sermon on Thursday afternoon to Catherine so she could get the PowerPoint going and the handouts ready. And I was driving home and I said... It's just too long. There's no way I'll finish that sermon in one service. And so I had to email her and divide it up to two. So this is part one. If you want to hear part two, come next week, okay? All right. Chapter two, verse one, the Bible says, Then the angel, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I 
will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, you are high and exalted above all nations. Your glory is high above the heavens. You are the one true God that sits on the throne and reigns with power and wisdom and majesty. You are the one who made a way for us Though separated from you and lost in our sins, you made a way for us to be saved by giving us your only Son who died for our sins, who died in our place. And because of Jesus, we've been forgiven, we've been reconciled, we can know you in a personal way. So Lord, I pray that you would help me and help us in these moments to make much of Jesus. He is worthy of worship. And worthy of praise. And I pray that you'd give us the grace to hear what the Spirit is saying to Longview Point Baptist Church. Lord, we love you, we praise you. We acknowledge you and your presence in this place. And I ask you to establish my steps in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Last week we introduced this summer sermon series and saw how... uh, Jesus appeared to John the Apostle late in the first century as John was in exile on an island called Patmos. John was in exile because he was preaching the gospel. And during the the persecution led by the Roman Emperor Domitian, uh, John was sent to jail on this island, to exile on this island. But while he was on the island, Jesus appears to give him a a lot of information, a lot of it dealing with end times and how everything's going to play out at the end of of human history, but he begins his message to John that he wanted John to relay with some specific messages for seven churches located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and we looked at that last week. Now, to establish the context of this passage we just read, I want to think through three different headings. First of all, I want you to think about the city that Jesus is addressing, the city Uh, where the church resides. It says, to the angel, and last week we said the angel could be an angel assigned to watch over each church, or it could be the the messenger. The word angel could be translated messenger, the the, the pastor, if you will, of the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Notice in verse 1 he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was an important city in Asia Minor. It was the capital of that Roman province, and its citizens called it the metropolis of Asia. Ephesus was a prosperous business center. It was located on a major trade route from Rome to the east, and it was a major harbor situated between the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. It was the location of a a temple to the pagan goddess Diana, or sometimes called Artemis, that was acknowledged as one of the seven wonders of the world. So this was a well-known city, and it was filled with with pagan idolatry and immorality surrounding the vile worship of this this false deity. So that's the city, the great city, the well-known city of Ephesus. But then I want you to think about the church. Look what it says in verse 1. To the angel of the 
church in Ephesus. There was a church in Ephesus. There were a group of Christians that gathered together, united by the gospel, and Jesus is addressing this group of Christians, this church that was in the city of Ephesus. Now, we happen to know a lot about this church because we see how it's established in the book of Acts and and its continuing ministry. We see some letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, the leaders of the church of Ephesus. We see a letter that Paul wrote directly to the church. And so we have a lot of information about this church. And here's what we know, just very quickly. We know the church was established by Priscilla and Aquila, who Paul had left there in around AD 52, near the end of his uh, second missionary journey. We know that Priscilla and Aquila were aided by a young man named Apollos who had to be taught some, some doctrinal reality, so he was caught up to speed with the realities of Jesus. But once he learned who Jesus was and, and came to full knowledge of who Jesus was, he was a mighty preacher of the Word and was instrumental in establishing the church in Ephesus. We know that on his third missionary journey, Paul returned to Ephesus and spent two years and three months there. Two years and three months, the Apostle Paul spent in this city with these Christians in Ephesus. And we know from Acts 19, verse 10, that that Paul was apparently using Ephesus as a home base of ministry from which to evangelize the area of Asia Minor. Now, we also know that Timothy, Paul's young protege at some point, became the pastor of the church in Ephesus because we see Paul's letters to Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, he's writing to him, instructing him how to pastor this church in Ephesus. And we know some things the church was dealing with and learning because Paul wrote them a letter called the book of Ephesians, uh, dealing with some specific issues. And So we know a lot about this church. We also know from church history that after Timothy pastored the church in Ephesus, the Apostle John at some point became the pastor of the church in Ephesus before he was sent into exile. So this church had a a remarkable beginning, a remarkable history. They had some great leaders. Think about their leaders. Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, Apostle John. I mean, an impressive list of leaders. That's the church that Jesus is addressing here. So we thought about the city, we thought about the church, but I want you to see the one who is addressing them, the Christ. The Christ. Look what it says in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, with each message to each church, Jesus begins with a description of himself. And it's going to be interesting to note how the description he shares meets the particular need of each church. Let me say it again. The way he describes himself in each message fits the particular need that the church had. And so here he describes himself. I want you to see how he describes himself to the church in Ephesus. First of all, he says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, in chapter 1, verse 16, we saw last week that it says, in his right hand he held seven stars. We said those were the the pastors, the angels of the, of the churches, and he held, holds them in his hand. He's the one that's in control and the one who cares about his church. And, and I want you to see that the word holds in chapter 2, verse 1 is different than the word held in chapter 1, verse 16. The word held in one sixteen is the word for have. In other words, he had seven stars in his right hand. There in verse 1 of chapter 2, the word holds is the word in the Greek language grasping tightly. 
And so Jesus here is holding on tightly to the, the, the stars in his hand. And then it says, he's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Last week I told you this picture is Jesus' presence among his churches. That Jesus loves his church and Jesus walks in the midst of his churches. Jesus is with us when we gather together. We know that Jesus is right here in our midst, right? It says that he, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now here's something that's pretty cool. The word holds... And the word walks are both present tense verbs in the original Greek language, which means this is continual. Jesus is continually holding the stars in his hand. Jesus is continually walking in the midst of his churches. Then look what it says in verse 1. It says, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now that little phrase may not look, much, look like much in the, in the English, but the word this in the original Greek is the word tade, and here's why that's important. The Greeks in the first century that spoke Koine, common, ordinary Greek did not use this phrase. They didn't use the word tade. It would be like me saying today, thus saith. We don't talk like that anymore, do we? I don't walk up to you and say, thus saith Wade. How are you today? We don't talk like that anymore. And this word translated this, it was a word they didn't use anymore. It was a word that was reserved for formal announcements. It was used by royalty to make a royal proclamation. And so who's the one speaking? The one who holds the seven stars? The one who walks among his church? And the one who is king of kings, who has something to say to his church? That, that's the context of this passage. Now, the, 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 the passage or the message to Ephesus has four different parts. We're going to get to two this morning, okay? We're going to get to two, and, and, and we'll finish it next week. But the first part of this message is where Jesus refers to the strengths of Ephesus. He mentions the strengths of this church. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. And that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Jesus here mentions some strengths in the church in Ephesus. Now, out of the seven messages that Jesus has here in Revelation 2 and 3, five of them list some commendations for the churches he's writing to. There are two churches. He doesn't mention anything good, which isn't good. But here with this church... He has some good things to say about uh, those Christians in Ephesus. First of all, he mentions that they labored in the work of the Lord. The first strength is this. The church in Ephesus labored in the work of the Lord. Look what he says there in verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil. I know your deeds and your toil. The first word, deeds, is the, is the ordinary word for work. Doing something. Okay, And the people in Ephesus were were doing some things in the name of Christ. They were serving. When they needed someone to work in the nursery, they had plenty of help. Can I get an amen? When they needed to follow up with a prospect, they had plenty of folks to follow up. When they needed to minister to the poor, they had plenty of folks to minister to the poor. I mean, they were working for Jesus. And not only were they working, they were working hard. It says, I know your deeds and your toil. That word toil is the word kopos in the Greek. It's the word for roll up your sleeves kind of work. 
This is hard, back-breaking labor. And they were working hard for Jesus. This was not a spectator church. They were not sitting on the sidelines while a few few folks did the work. They were a church that worked hard for Jesus. And Jesus recognizes this. It's a good thing. I, I, I see your deeds and I see your toil. You, you roll up your sleeves and you serve Jesus. That's, that's good. They labored in the work of the Lord. But secondly, this church stood against false teaching. And Jesus commends that. Look what he says in verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. The church in Ephesus was dealing with some false teachers and Jesus commends them for the way they do not tolerate these false teachers. Now, The presence of false teachers seems to have been an ongoing problem with the church in Ephesus. And this should be no surprise to them because, hold your place, but turn with me to Acts chapter 20. After Paul spent two years with this church, he was getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He knew he'd be arrested, didn't know if he'd ever see them again. And in Acts chapter 20, he's he's sharing a farewell message with the elders, the leaders of this church. And look what he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. This is Paul speaking. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Now look in verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves... Men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Paul's saying, after I leave, you will have false teachers that will try to infiltrate your church and lead people astray. Be on guard. That's exactly what happened. We read the, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, and he talks about being led astray with every wind and wave of doctrine. So false teachers were actively trying to lead people astray. When Paul writes to his young protege Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he's warning him as a pastor, protect your people from the false teachers. And so this constant threat from false teachers was an ongoing problem with the church. And Jesus says, I commend you because you've tested those who call themselves apostles and you found them to be false and you would not tolerate them. Now, what was the false teaching that they were dealing with? Well, we get a clue in verse 6. Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. He says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the Nicolaitans are mentioned twice in the seven messages that Jesus has for the seven churches. They're mentioned in this letter to Ephesus, and they're also mentioned in his message to Pergamum. And honestly... We don't know much about the Nicolaitans. We know they were false teachers. And there are two kind of major theories about who the Nicolaitans were. Some people believe they were followers of one of the first deacons that come from Acts chapter 6 named Nicholas. They believe that Nicholas went astray doctrinally and started teaching some false things. And he had a a group of followers that that followed him in the wrong direction. These followers were, were nicknamed Nicolaitans. So basically this view holds that there was a deacon that went bad. 
And his followers were following him the wrong direction. And by the way, let me say parenthetically, I'm glad we don't have any Nicholases in our deacon body at Longview Point. We've got some godly men that love the Lord and love you, and I'm just so grateful for our deacon body. But, but perhaps they were, they were led astray by a, by a deacon named Nicholas. That's one view. Another view looks at the breakdown of the roots that make up the word Nicolaitan, which basically means to conquer the people. Now, over in uh, chapter 2, later in chapter 2, when he mentions the church in Pergamum, mentions the Nicolaitans, he connects the teachings of the Nicolaitans with Balaam from the Old Testament. And if you look at Balaam's name and break that down in the Hebrew language, it means something like conqueror of the people. So they believe there's a tie-in there that these Nicolaitans were, were nicknamed conquerors of the people. They were trying to conquer the people with false doctrine. So there's, there's, there's debate over who the Nicolaitans were. And there's debate over what their message consisted of. We don't know the specifics of their false teaching. Uh, we know by looking at the message of Pergamum that their, their teaching was characterized by idolatry, worship of false gods, and immorality. So some people say maybe this is what's happening. In the first century, the Roman emperor was considered a god. And as a Roman citizen, you were required to worship Caesar as God. So when Christians embrace Christ, the one true God, and they have the Bible that, that, that teaches them and conveys them who the one true God is, naturally they would say, or supernaturally they would say, no, we'll not bow our knee to Caesar. There's only one God. There's only one King. There's only one Lord. His name is Jesus. We're going to stay faithful to Him. Well, maybe these Nicolaitans were saying something like this. You know what? You can do your Jesus stuff, but you can also pay tribute to Caesar. No big deal. And perhaps they were compromising or even practicing syncretism, tying together uh, beliefs from one uh, belief system into Christianity, trying to, trying to merge two different uh, belief systems. We don't know exactly what they were doing, but they were leading people astray. And Jesus says, I'm glad that when you heard the teaching of the Nicolaitans, you did not tolerate them. So what did they do when they heard the teaching? Look what it says back in chapter 2, verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 2, he says, he says, you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles. They are not, and you found them to be false. So folks would ride into town, ride into Ephesus, and say, hey, we're apostles of Christ. We have a message for you. And the church would say, okay, share your message. You know what they'd do next? They'd have their Bibles open. The Word of God. And as these apostles taught, these so-called apostles, as they taught, they would say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like the Word of God. That doesn't sound like the message of Christ. That doesn't sound like the message of the apostles, Paul and, and Peter and John. That doesn't, that doesn't sound right. And they would test the teaching of these folks by the Word, and when it was shown that their teaching was unbiblical, when it was wrong, the Bible says they wouldn't tolerate them. They had to go. Which, by the way, is always the proper response to false teachers. If someone tries to infiltrate a church and lead people astray from the doctrines of the faith, they need to go. Let me say it like this. If you're in a, a connect group somewhere, and someone stands up and starts saying some crazy stuff, saying something like, Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin, or... Or Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, or the Bible's not really the Word of God, you need to shut down class and get out of there. And we'll deal with it later. Because 
because false teachers lead people astray. And Jesus said, test what they say by the word. If it doesn't line up, don't tolerate them. Don't tolerate them. Now, here's what's interesting. When Paul warns the church in Ephesus about false teachers, it's, it's about the middle part of the first century. This is near the end of the first century. So you say, Wade, uh, Longview Point is doctrinally sound. We, we believe the right stuff. We're, we're, we're on the right path. We believe the Bible. Yeah, we do. We are doctrinally sound, but we're only 10 years old. What's important is that we stay doctrinally sound the next 10 years. And the 10 years after that. And the 10 years after that. That we build our ministry on the authority of the inerrant, inspired Word of God. Truth with no mixture of error. This is our standard. And if anything doesn't line up with this, it's got to go. If I start preaching false doctrine, you need to fire me. Quickly. You hear what I'm saying? Everything is to be tested by the Word of God. And the church in Ephesus did that. And Jesus said, it's good. I have this this commendation for you that you stand against false teachers. You don't bear with them. You, you, You don't tolerate them. And here's the third strength of the church in Ephesus. They endured in the midst of difficult circumstances. Look in verse 2. He says, you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles. They are not. You found them to be false. Verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. The word perseverance there is the word upomone. It means steadfastness. You've been steadfast in the midst of difficulty. The word endured is the word bastazato. It means to bear up under. It means to get up under a heavy weight and carry it. And he's saying, you as a church are living in difficult times. You are living under a heavy weight, but you haven't stopped serving Christ. You're, you're, you're under the weight. You're feeling the weight, but you're moving forward. You're enduring. You're steadfast. You're staying by the stuff. He says in verse 3, you have not grown weary. That word weary carries with the idea of, of, of laboring to the point of exhaustion. And he's saying, you're tired, the burden is heavy, but you haven't stopped. You're keeping on, keeping on for Christ. And so, Jesus mentions the the strengths. They labored in the work of the Lord, they stood against false teaching, and they endured in the midst of difficult circumstances. This was a church that had much to be commended. And as I study this, this church sounds really familiar This could be talking about your average Baptist church. Hard work, lots of activities, lots of programs. Staying doctrinally sound, protecting the church, the church's doctrinal integrity, bearing up and and serving Jesus in the the midst of difficult circumstances. This This could be long viewpoint. But, not only do I want you to see the strengths of the church in Ephesus, I want you to see the shortcomings of the church in Ephesus. Look in verse 4. But, Jesus says, he commends them, but I have this against you. What? That you have left your first love. Though they were doctrinally sound and hardworking and steadfast, they had left their first love. The church had abandoned its first love, Jesus. 
Now, here's why that's ironic. Turn with me to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6. This letter deals with so many wonderful themes. Chapter 1 deals with all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Chapter 2 deals with Christ making Jews and Gentiles one. Chapter 3 deals with with Christ doing immeasurably more than we ask or think. Chapter 4 deals with living, uh, living as those who are new in Christ and walking in a worthy manner. Chapter 5 deals with marriage issues. Chapter 6 deals with spiritual warfare. I mean, there's so many wonderful themes throughout Ephesians. But look how Paul ends the letter. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. The last verse in this book, he writes, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. He's saying grace on those who love Jesus with an undivided heart. Their love does not diminish. Their love is not corrupted. They love Jesus preeminently. And yet by the end of the first century, some of them have stopped loving Jesus preeminently. Their love had been corrupted. Their love had been diminished. Their love had been abandoned. Now, let me read you this quote from Grant Osborne. It's it's a powerful quote that sent chills up my spine. Let me read the quote, then I'll tell you why it sent chills up my spine. He writes, They, the church in Ephesus, had lost the first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life and had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. The second generation of the church had probably failed to maintain the fervor of the first. They had fulfilled Christ's prophecy in Matthew 24, 12. The love of many will grow cold. Now let me tell you what's striking about that quote to me. Right in the middle he says, the second generation of the church had probably failed to maintain the fervor of the first. Now let's think about Longview Point for a moment. We're in the first generation of Longview Point. But in these next few years, I want you to hear me, we will be transitioning ministry, handing off the baton to the second generation. And I want the second generation of Longview Point to love Jesus like the first generation. Listen to me. And the second generation is not going to love Jesus like the first generation if they don't see it continuing on in the first generation's lives. In other words, it's our responsibility to show the next generation of Longview Point what it means to love Jesus above all else. They're going to see that and learn that from us, right? So we should not be concerned with with year 10 of Longview Point and year 15 and year 20. We should be concerned with year 25 and year 30 and year 35 and year 40. Will Will the next generations love Jesus? Will they see it in us? That's what's at stake here. The church had abandoned its first love, Jesus. Now here's the question that I want to answer and spend the rest of the sermon focusing on. How do we get to this point? How does a Christian get to the point where Jesus is not their preeminent love anymore? How does a church get to the point where they're busy and they're doctrinally sound, but they don't love Jesus? How How does a church or a person get to this point Let me offer five suggestions. This list is not exhaustive, but it's a good starting place to think about how someone or a a group of someones get to this point. 
Number one, I believe it can stem from a lack of relationship building. A lack of relationship building. Over in John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The word abide means to remain, to stay close to, to stay connected to. And Jesus says, if you'll stay connected to me, I'll bear fruit through your life. You'll be fruitful if you'll stay connected to me. And as he goes on to unpack what it means to abide in him, he mentions the role of prayer and the role of the word of God. And so Jesus is saying, you need to stay close to me in terms of your relationship. And you do that by hearing me speak through the Bible and by speaking to me through prayer. That's how you maintain closeness with me. That's how you walk with me. That's how you build the relationship. But here's what happens. If we don't focus on growing in our personal relationship with Jesus, our love for Jesus will grow cold. That raging fire we had when we met Christ will die down to smoldering embers if we don't focus on the personal relationship. Now, we know this when it comes to earthly relationships. Think about it like this. What if we treated our spouse the way we treat Jesus? What if I said to Claire, Claire, I love you. You are great. You are wonderful. What a wife. And I'm going to talk to you once a week on Sunday mornings. Sunday morning, I'll come to you, Claire, and I'll say, Claire, you are great, great, great. I love you, I love you, I love you. And then after that's over, I'm not going to speak to you Monday through Saturday, but I'll be back next Sunday because I love you. Now, what kind of marriage would that be? But isn't that exactly what we do with Jesus? We show up on Sundays, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're great, you're great, you're great. But then we walk out the door and never talk to him again till the next Sunday. We ignore him Monday through Saturday and we wonder why our love has grown cold. We're not focusing on the personal relationship. We're not walking with Jesus. We're not talking with Jesus. We're not growing in intimacy with Jesus. I think one of the major reasons that Christians and churches lose their first love is because they do not focus on walking with Jesus every day. And your love will wane. Your love will grow cold. Being in the Word and, and, and being a person of prayer stokes the embers of your heart and, and fans those embers into flame so that you can have a daily love for Christ. Listen to me. God did not intend the Christian life to be lived one day a week. Can I get an amen? He intends the Christian life to be a reality every day of your life. And I believe one of the reasons that we leave our first love is because we don't focus on relationship building with Christ. Secondly, I believe competing affections cause our love for Christ to grow cold. Competing affections. Turn with me to the book of James. Book of James, New Testament. James chapter 4, verse 4. James writes, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He's saying, you cannot love the ungodly things of this world and love God at the same time. It's impossible, listen to me, it's impossible to maintain a love for the things of the world and a growing, thriving, 
relationship with Christ. Not going to happen. Those two things, the, the ungodly things of this world and a love for Christ, are mutually exclusive. They're not going to happen at the same time. And I believe that one of the issues in all of our lives is our lives are filled up with so much junk. So much ungodly junk. And there's so much ungodly junk, it crowds out a love for Christ. Have you found that to be true? You can't be a friend of the world and love Jesus. And so when you begin to enter into a growing friendship with the world, your love for Christ will grow cold. Competing affections. Your heart divided and not fully focused on Christ. Third, how do we get to the point where we abandon our first love? Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Turn to the book of Judges with me very quickly. Book of Judges, Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua, Judges. Look with me in Judges, chapter 2. This passage is talking about the nation of Israel. Judges, chapter 2, verse 10. It says, all that generation, the, the, the generation of those who were faithful to, Christ, to God, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Somewhere, somewhere along the way, the people of Israel forgot God. They forgot his works. They forgot who he was. And look what happens in verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them, and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Do you see the progression here? They forgot God, and they forgot God and His goodness and His redemption and His power and His works. They turned from God to other things. Now I want you to know, and we forget God's goodness in our lives, our love for Christ will grow cold. That's why the Bible places such a huge emphasis on remembering God, remembering Christ, remembering what He's done for us. This weekend is a weekend we set aside for Memorial Day. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. We have a holiday. And Memorial Day is all about remembering, right? Remembering that there are some Brave men and women who gave their lives to protect our freedom. And here's the deal. We understand in our nation that if we don't remember their sacrifice, we'll take our freedom for granted. And in the same way, if you don't remember the grace and mercy of God for you, if you don't remember that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, if you don't keep that at the forefront of your heart and mind, you will take your salvation for granted. And your love will grow cold. Forgetfulness. I think sometimes we just don't remember or spend time thinking about what Christ has done. We'll get to more of that next week. Next, I believe the pressures of life can cause us to abandon our first love. Turn to 1 Peter with me, New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 
The Bible says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Peter's saying, when you encounter trials, when you encounter hardship, when you encounter suffering, it's a test. It reveals what's really on the inside of you. Did you know that trials can do one of two things in your life? One, they can push you towards the Lord and make you desperate for Him. Or, trials can push you away from God. And I think some folks are so overwhelmed by the circumstances of their life that their heart has been pushed away from God. And their eyes are more on their circumstances than they are on their Savior. And their love for Christ has grown cold. Pressures of life can, can, can cause our love for Christ to diminish. Right? Have you been there? I've been there. And then last, how do we get to the point where we abandon our first love? Sin. Just sin. You know what sin is? It's disobedience. It's violating the commandments of God. And when there is sin in our life that has not been dealt with, when there's sin in our life that has not been repented of, it's taken root in us, it will always, always, always cause our love for Christ to grow cold. Think about Psalm 51. David committed adultery and murder to cover up his adultery. He's confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, who God sent to speak to David. And when he's confronted, the Bible says that David repented. He, he, he turned from his sin and wanted to get right with God. And Psalm 51 is this powerful prayer of repentance. He says things like this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Purge me as with hyssop. Make me clean. Make me whiter than snow. My sin is dirty. My sin was wrong. Would you cleanse my heart? And then he says this. Will you restore to me the joy of your salvation? You see the connection there? His sin had caused him to lose his joy. His joy of knowing the Lord. And when you have unconfessed sin in your life that has not been dealt with, it will cause you to lose the joy of loving Jesus. The joy of walking with Jesus. The joy of remembering Christ's goodness in your life. So how do we get to that point, Wade, where we abandon our first love as a Christian, as a church? Lack of relationship building. Competing affections. Forgetfulness. The pressures of life. And sin. The shortcomings of Ephesus can be a reality in our life. We are all prone to abandoning our first love. We're all capable of abandoning our first love. You say, wait, what do you do about it? We'll come back next week. I'll talk to you next week about how to recapture your first love as we look at this unfolding message of Jesus to the church in Ephesus. But here's what I want to leave you with this morning. If Jesus is not the preeminent love of your life, remember my opening question, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus more than anything or anyone else? If you can't say yes to both of those questions, I want you to examine your heart. And I want you to ask yourself this question, how did I get here? Why is my love diminished? Why has my love grown cold? 
How did I get here? And think through these, these things I share with you this morning. And begin to dialogue with God today. Ask the Lord to do a work in your life. So you can deal with these issues and begin to recapture your love for Christ. And we'll get more specific next week on that. But I believe half the battle is knowing how you got where you are. And so think through that prayerfully this morning. What does God want to say to you from this message? How does God want to use this message in your life? Listen to me. You can believe the Bible and not love Jesus. Right? Church in Ephesus, they were doctrinally sound, didn't love Jesus preeminently. You can serve the Lord and be busy for Jesus and not love Jesus. When I was in seminary, we had a guest preacher that made this comment, and it was one of those chill bump moments for me. He said to a group of preacher boys, he said this. He said, it's possible to love preaching about Jesus more than you love Jesus. And that's true. It's possible for us to be serving Jesus and not love Him preeminently. So let's let the Lord do a fresh work in our lives to rekindle dying embers for the glory of His name.